Right, uh, season two, episode one of the ballpark. Let's go. Populism. Populist populism. 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 Populist populism. 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 Whoa, okay. Okay, okay. Populism. Whoa, slow down. Okay. There we go. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson. That America will become a land, sharing the fruits of the land, not for the favored few, not to satisfy greed. That's Huey Long. But that all may live in a land in which the Lord has provided an abundance sufficient for the luxury and convenience of the people in general. I think. Back in the 20s and 30s, Populism was synonymous with the name Huey Long, who was a Democratic governor and U.S. Senator from Louisiana. Long's populism was rooted in supporting, protecting, and even prioritizing the lower classes over the capitalist and political elites. It is our estimate that 4% of the American people own 85% of the wealth of America, and that over 70% of the people of America Long is both familiar and a world apart. With Donald Trump's election and the UK's Brexit vote last year, everyone's been talking about populism. For many commentators, both of these political earthquakes were fueled by the type of rising inequality that Long was talking about, as well as concerns over immigration. So we know that these concerns aren't new, but there are differences. America has seen populism before, but why are we seeing it again? What makes it different this time around? And what impact is it having on our political landscape? Play ball. So let's just start out with why now? Why are we seeing a resurgence in populism now? Really, if we want to explain the why now question, uh, I think we have to look at, at the migration issue. That's Professor Eric Kaufman. Yeah, so I'm Eric Kaufman. I'm a professor of politics in the uh, in Birkbeck College, University of London. Who's currently working on a book on how white majorities in the West are responding to an age of migration and ethnic transformation. But the U.S. has seen high immigration before, and so now... Why has it come to such a head? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I would answer there, largely it's to do with immigration. But, of course, you have to look at each country and look at the nature of the flows. One thing that's the case, for example, is that the proportion of foreign-born in European countries, uh, particularly of non-European foreign-born, is we have you know we haven't seen that proportion in the past number 1 number 2 in the US the last time you had over 13% foreign born was in the period 1900 to 1920 which was a period of quite you know quite intense anti-immigration politics so in a way it's kind of the more surprising question would be if we didn't see anything happening. Um, that almost needs to be explained as much as why we are seeing anti-immigration politics. So, Should we have predicted this? Should we have seen it coming? Well, I, I don't think many of us were very good at predicting developments, but I do think there were factors that one could have pointed to. So, for example, what we see, I think, is a growing polarization in Western societies on values grounds. So whereas it used to be the big political divide was left versus right uh, about economic redistribution and the free market, the new, I guess, emerging polarization is 
what you might call open versus closed culturally or cosmopolitan versus nationalist. So that kind of cultural divide has been emerging probably since the late 1980s with the beginnings of the rise of the radical right in Europe. Um, What happened in the U.S., of course, is you get the emergence of a religious conservatism, the new Christian right in the 1970s, 80s, 90s. And I actually think that somewhat, you know, move things in a it was it was a form of culture war, but I think we're now moving in certainly in the US is moving more towards where Europe is and that is it's a culture war but it's really over the the, the who are we question, who are we as the nation. So our political spectrum has sort of shifted to a new axis. So instead of lying between conservative to liberal, now it's between nationalist and cosmopolitan. It's between closed and open. So we have a political shift going on in much of the Western world. So what about these two cultures at either end of the new political spectrum? So so you have this emerging cultural split, which to a large extent c- cross-cuts the left-right dimension. So you have left people who are kind of left-wing oriented, maybe former working class uh, or former formerly unionized employees who would be quite anti-immigration, for example, and have that more conservative cultural set of values. And then you might get somebody who's right-wing, pro-free market, and also quite liberal on the cultural values. And who are these groups? Plenty of post-election analysis has pointed out how this new political spectrum divides us by age, gender, and education. Yeah, no, definitely. So uh, younger uh, voters, people with university degrees, certainly would be more liberal uh, on all these cultural dimensions, uh, with a few exceptions. But it's not really the whole story. But the important point is that those demographic factors actually only explain a very small share of the variation in attitudes. So you have people with degrees who are very culturally conservative, and you've got people without degrees who are passionate, you know, remainers and very cosmopolitan. Um, But yes, it is true that particularly university education, uh, I'd say, is really, uh, that is one of the most important demographics. Not income, not class so much. Uh, more so than age, uh, it's really whenever you you know look at education, it really splits the data very very strongly. But even education is not as important as uh, values. If you ask a specific question, such as support for the death penalty or even uh, items on child rearing, um, those will come out stronger than education. So it's it's education is important mainly because it signals a kind of worldview. Uh, a kind of uh, set of attitudes and values, not because it is a marker of a class or income or status in that way. So I, I would say it's it's linked into that cultural worldview divide that I talked about. So instead of being divided by clear, visible factors, our attitudes and beliefs are in fact better indicators of where we're going to fall on the political spectrum or even how we're going to vote. So if it's attitudes and not demographics that starkly divide us, can these divided groups be brought together? Americans seem to have divergent opinions on everything from policy issues to the basic elements of democracy. Well, I think the the groups, the two groups, are less divided on issues such as democracy. I think the big divide is over particularly immigration and national identity issues. It's not even so much about, say, gay rights or, or religion. I mean, these are not really the big dividers. I mean, even in the U.S., religion is becoming slightly less important. So it's about immigration and national identity. That's what Eric is saying is at the root of this divide. And what can American leaders do about it? Or what should American leaders do? What I think the government 
you know, centrist parties, I think what they need to do is to start having different messaging for different parts of the population. So um, when addressing a a white liberal or, or diverse audience, yes, you can talk about Britain becoming more diverse, Britain is multicultural and whatever. But when uh, addressing culturally conservative white majority audiences, uh, that's, I think, not a good idea. I think it tends to, to stoke fear and resentment. Um, what you want to do is, is I think, you, you, you want to talk about reassurance that actually there is immigration but if we look historic, historically, immigrants have tended to assimilate to the dominant culture and actually things aren't going to change very much. I think that message is a better message. And in some of the, the research that I've done, um, you know, it shows that when you actually give a narrative like that, and when you say, look, there have been these waves of immigration, they haven't really changed the country that much. Things more or less we should expect will remain the same. UKIP voters, hard Brexit voters, and white working class voters without degrees will tend to respond very well to that. So their opposition to immigration, the hardcore opposition will tend to decline somewhat, a significant amount, and especially a shift away from, say, a hard Brexit position towards a softer Brexit position. So I think different messages for different people. It's certainly possible in the age of digital targeting, but is it the right thing to do? Eric would say that approach actually acknowledges the differences between people, between their perspectives on society. People are different, and... And that's fine, because not everybody is the same, and you, we shouldn't expect everybody to be on exactly one hymn sheet. Because one, one of the points I try to make is that national identity is not unitary. People can identify with a country uh, in many different ways, and some people might identify with Britain through their many generations of ancestors in Britain. Here, he's talking about the UK. But this also applies to the U.S. That, that's, there's not a problem. As long as that's, they don't insist that people who don't have that ancestry aren't British, then there's no problem. So, so you can have people connecting to the nation in different ways. And I think that that kind of diversity of not diverse ethnic diversity or multiculturalism, but it's a, it's a sort of saying that there are different ways of being British or American and we need to actually allow for that. So if there are different ways to be American and different ways to be British along this new political spectrum, can we compare the ends of those polls in these two countries? Are the two versions of populism that we see in the US and the UK similar? I think there's a lot of similarities. I actually find, the in looking through the survey data, I find, and also the election data, I find a lot of parallels. Uh, that is the immigration issue. If you want to, um, if you want to examine support for Donald Trump. Not necessarily whether someone voted Republican or not in the election, because someone might have disliked Trump, but just couldn't bring themselves to vote for a Democrat. But in terms of liking Trump or not liking Trump, uh, that is very much tied to your view on immigration, to some extent terrorism. The Syrian refugee issue, there's no better issue for sort of picking up polarization over Trump than views on Syrian refugees. Um, and we see that also with the Brexit vote and with uh, support for Brexit, that it's it's immigration absolutely number one, uh, which is driving the vote. I mean, it's not to say it's the only issue, but in both cases, I would say these are values-based issues. Oh, the other thing I should say, too, is you also have the impact of what psychologists would call uh, authoritarianism, which is really, I, I suppose a better word for that is, again, the split between people who think the world is a dangerous place and want to be secure and safe and want stability, and then you've got people who 
uh, are, are, are oriented differently and, and like change and difference and novelty and, and exploration and all of that. And so that um, divide turns up very strongly. So, for example, on the death penalty question, uh, massively uh, people who are pro-death death, uh, death penalty are massively Brexit and those who are anti are much more Remain, similarly with the Trump vote. So I think similar set of kind of cultural attitudes uh, but also this immigration question because the- because the immigration factor explains why now going back to our first point so why now as eric noted before immigration rates from different continents are up in both the us and the uk and so underlying the conversation about the contemporary form of populism is race and even racism so let's look at populism through that lens of race are we seeing us populism produce racist policies are President Trump's immigration and border policies racist? We don't have, I mean, I've, I've been critical of, of this, that we don't seem to have a center ground that's a bit more nuanced on this question of racism. So, for example, a lot of the people who are saying that the Muslim ban is racist, which it is, it's very clearly a racist thing, but we're calling the wall racist. And I actually think you can be in favor of a wall and not be racist, whereas it's not possible to be in favor of a Muslim ban and not be racist. That's an important distinction. And I think if people who maybe support the wall feel like, oh, anything is going to, anything that we support is going to be called racist, they may become desensitized. And so they actually aren't going to get outraged when a truly racist policy such as banning Muslims is, is put into place. So that's my, that's my concern. I do, I do think that there should be a kind of center ground where we can say, yes, certain things are, are racist and, and outrageous and disgusting. Other things we may not like, but are not racist. So I, I think it's an important distinction. And, and I think there's also, I mean, a, a writer called Shadi Hamid, who in, in the Washington Post, who was saying, actually, there's an important distinction between uh, racism, which is sort of uh, an irrational fear or hatred of a group, and, and racial self-interest. So, so let's say you want to have less immigration so your group doesn't shrink as quickly. That's a racial self-interested motive. I think it's problematic to call it racism. Um, and I think in a way, you know, we, it may be illiberal, it may not be, it may be clannish or something that we don't support. But I think part of the problem is by slinging this racism epithet around. I think that sharpens uh, the divisions that each side starts to take, get a very one-dimensional view of the other. So I think it's really how do we get out of this polarized situation, I think, is, is kind of one of the big challenges. To look at some of these issues in more detail, I'm now joined by my co-host, Denise Barron and Brian Klass, who's a fellow in comparative politics in LSE's Department of Government. He's the author of the new book, The Desperate's Accomplice, How the West is Aiding and Abetting the Decline of Democracy. So Brian, it would seem that the subject of your book is incredibly appropriate for the types of trends and things that we're seeing. Was that planned? Uh, it wasn't. I, my academic research uh, was about democracy and the erosion of it around the world. And I started writing the book last year before Brexit or Trump had happened. And now it turns out that my expertise is uh, is a bit more timely. I, I never thought that my previous career and this career would intersect. I used to work, I, can't, I co-managed a campaign for governor in my home state of Minnesota and worked in U.S. politics. And now the sort of erosion of democracy, the rise of authoritarianism and that aspect has merged the two parts of my life uh, in a horrific way. So, <laughs> I'm also an old campaign flack. 
So, All right. Yeah. Recovering, recovering Democrats, perhaps, or Republicans. <laughs> well, it's good to be talking to people who have political experience uh, in this sort of thing. So my first sort of leading question for you, Brian, is what does populism mean for democracy at, th- uh, at the moment as we're seeing it? Well, I think to be clear, we have to say that the the populism in the purest sense of the word is 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 sort of a popular you're trying to gain popular approval for for a set of policies what we're seeing is a liberal populism and i think there's an important distinction because a liberal populism tends to challenge the basic aspects of liberalism and i mean liberalism in the sort of european sense of believing in democracy uh, rule of law, human rights, these type of aspects that have been core tenets of Western democracy since World War II. And that aspect of populism is what's really getting challenged. What's really challenging liberal democracy right now is, is how uh, for political expediency and with a lot of fear mongering and xenophobia, uh, those core values are being cast aside all too readily by a series of politicians, not just in uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, but also in places like Hungary, where you see Viktor Orban rolling back democracy with a new constitution. And this is happening around the world. So my book is trying to look at the decline of democracy in a broader sense, noting that it's a long-term trend where the world has become less democratic every year since 2006. So now we have 11 straight years of democratic decline. And I would argue, uh, unfortunately, that that trend is only going to accelerate. Um, The analogy I use when I talk about this, particularly with Trump, is that I critique in the book primarily how the U.S. and Western governments acted as a biased referee for democracy. So they called the shots of the game, and they turned a blind eye when Saudi Arabia had a penalty or or various regimes that were geostrategically expedient, but they still were a referee. And the problem with Trump's America First uh, mentality, in my view, combined with illiberal populism, is that the referee is just abandoning the game and not watching it anymore. So uh, to me, this is, you know, there's two stories here. One is this is part of a long-term trend, and the bad news is that the trend is accelerating. Okay. So you've you've obviously looked at other countries, and you talk about Victor Orban and in places like Hungary. What sort of things should we be looking at for in the U.S.? if we're worried about a slide into authoritarianism? Are we seeing any of those things now that that have happened in other countries? We have. So I've been writing about this a bit, and already we have seen it's it's about to be the first 50 days of the Trump presidency complete. Already there's been enormous damage done to American democracy. Um, there's several fronts for this. One is something that's really troubling is the blurring of fact and fiction. There was a poll recently uh, released that showed that 86% of Republicans uh, trusted Trump to tell the truth rather than the media, uh, in spite of the fact that independent fact-checkers from the Washington Post, for example, have found 194 falsehoods in the first 46 days of his presidency. It's something where it it was actually news when there was one day that elapsed without a misleading or false statement from Trump. Um, But now there's a polarization of politics where a lot of partisans in the Republican Party specifically believe Trump over the media. Um, and, and that is one of the major precursors, precursors to the rise of authoritarianism because there's no real uh, authority on truth. And that's when you can really erode democratic checks and balances. Um, the other aspect is attacking the press more generally. So Trump has, uh, I think, at most gone a few days at maximum without saying the words fake news. Um, that's totally fine if we're talking about actual fake news where it's a manufactured story with no basis or in reality. But what he is using it to describe is things that are negative portrayals of himself. And he literally tweeted at one point, fake news polls are showing me in a negative light. 
but he's also used those exact same polls from those exact same organizations to tout his popularity when they gave the story that he wanted. So uh, attacks on independent press, the lack of transparency, Sean Spicer doing briefings behind closed doors without cameras, all of this is new territory for American democracy. And I think the real bottom line, the trend that you're seeing already is people have a lot of faith in checks and balances. They're not magical documents. They're not magical institutions. They're as strong as the people who defend them under times of duress. And this is a time of duress for American democracy. And some of them are functioning, but many of them are wavering. And uh, the rise of authoritarian bents in a lot of people's politics these days is what really gives me pause and worry for uh, whether we can weather the Trump storm without losing some of the credibility and integrity of American democracy. Brian, I'm wondering if you can help us link up populism and authoritarianism, because there's somewhat two diametrically opposed phenomenons, right? Like populism at its heart is really about... Uh, appealing to the population, the broader general ordinary people, quote unquote ordinary, uh, in order and and pitting them against this elite that has been exploiting them essentially. And then authoritarianism is almost then concentrating power in an elite. So so how how are we seeing those kind of link up today? Sure. So you don't have to, there could be a Venn diagram between populism and authoritarianism that doesn't have perfect overlap, right? right you you right. can have populist politi- politics that are not authoritarian. They're appealing to the masses, uh, often in a simplistic way, but but in a way that may be genuinely popular. Where they have a very troubling overlap, that sort of middle of the dangerous Venn diagram, is when you're exploiting populist ideas by scapegoating uh, unpopular minority groups as a way to consolidate power. Mm. Um, And where I think this is happening in the United States that we need to watch very carefully is uh, obviously undocumented immigrants are very unpopular. Obviously, Muslims are very unpopular in the United States. Um, And also some minority communities, depending on where you are, are very unpopular. And Trump is exploiting fears of these people and and overblowing fears, I I would argue, as a way to explain why there needs to be more trust and authority given to his presidency. And why people who oppose him, for example, when the judges uh, put a stay on the original travel ban from the seven Muslim-majority countries, um, he lashed out on Twitter and said that the judges are basically not keeping us safe and that they will be the ones to blame for a terror attack. That's extremely dangerous. That's, that also goes back to my previous question of the erosion of democracy, because it's squarely placing blame for security issues on an independent judiciary doing its job. And that's where the overlap really is, is, is damaging in the United States, is he's using populist rhetoric, rhetoric, scapegoating minority groups on the guise of security, even though there's no real security threat that's been identified uh, from those countries, as a way to sideline an independent judiciary. So there's, there's nothing inherently evil about populism or wrong about populism, right, right. but it can be very easily exploited for the ends of eroding democracy, and that's what I think we're seeing in the U.S. So how do you square... Trump's rhetoric, you know, in his inauguration speech, he, he said that this this victory was for for the people, he was sort of giving power back to the people. But it seems to me that the people, the, the uh, who are uh, sort of brought in with his populist rhetoric, are kind of quite happily allowing sort of handing over the keys to the American state to American democracy. How do those two things square up? With it's it, this is for you, but actually I'm going to take over, and only I can fix these things. 
I think this is where Professor Kaufman was very apt in his analysis of the idea that there's a difference between the economic elite and the cultural elite. Mm. And Donald Trump is squarely in the uh, economic elite, but not in the cultural elite. And so he has this sort of credibility with people who are coal miners in West Virginia or out-of-work steel workers, whatever it is, uh, who believe them to be championing him. Unfortunately, the uh, way that he's comprised his administration has been exactly antagonistic to their interests. Um, and indeed, in, with the policy uh, ideas that he's proposed so far, there have been ideas of tax cuts disproportionately to the wealthy, um, but also just the composition of the cabinet. I mean, if you wanted to sort of come up with the comic book villain of Main Street for the financial collapse, it would be hard to imagine somebody other than Steve Mnuchin doing better at that, the, the, the now Treasury Secretary. I mean, he, he made his millions of dollars at Goldman Sachs, then went out and oversaw foreclosures of Main Street America at a more aggressive clip than other foreclosure banks, right? So, or foreclosure-driven uh, asset, you know, forfeitures. So there, there's there's a disconnect between the rhetoric that a lot of people find refreshing and the policy that is uh, ultimately going to hurt those people. Um, the problem is that a lot of people don't see that, you know, A to B line being drawn. And it's difficult when you have a long-term economic plan or a long-term healthcare shift on an extremely complicated matter of understanding that this is why it happened. And that's particularly important in light of what I said previously about the blurring of the line between fact and fiction, is that who do you trust when you have a problem? Trump can't say it's fake news when you lose, uh, when you lose your health insurance, but at the same time, uh, maybe people who lose their health insurance won't blame him. They might blame the Democrats or the media. And so that's, that's where this aspect of who to trust and who not to trust really uh, takes root. Uh, Denise, I know you've got some points about or some thoughts on the sort of subjectivity of national identity and how right, that fits in. Right. I mean, this, this bleeds, you know, right into to what Brian was saying about how the, the different views of what exactly is right, which exists right now. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's manifesting itself in a way where very basic elements of fact are being disregarded. The, the fact is that there are different subjective realities coming into conflict right now. And Eric Kaufman highlighted how um, perhaps we need to recognize that there are multiple ways to be American and multiple ways to be British, but rather we need to recognize the fact that those different mentalities exist. And one mentality that exists right now is that there are multiple ways to be British or multiple ways to be American. And there's also this other subjective reality that there isn't. So I guess I guess. I, I agree with him in, in a certain sense, but I also disagree because I think as social scientists, we should be acknowledging the fact that someone approaching their national identity in a unitary way is a major contributing factor to their other beliefs and to their other political actions. Well, looking at uh, how much time we have left, I'm, I'm going to sort of wrap things up with a question that we may agree or disagree on. be interesting to see. So Kaufman's... Uh, he talked about how the, the wall, the proposed wall with Mexico isn't racist, but Trump's so-called Muslim ban is. I'm just interested to know what, what both of you think about that. I mean, personally, I would tend to agree with him. I think that the wall isn't racist because I think countries do have borders and they are able to enforce them. We have borders with the, re with the rest of Europe. We enforce them. How we do it. On the other hand, I would agree that the Muslim ban is racist because essentially it's targeted at those countries that are majority Muslim. So I'm going to throw that out there to you both. Do you want to go ahead first? I, I have a very strong opinion, and I'm not sure. Quite a I mean, I basically say I, I don't think the wall itself is racist. I think that the way it has been proposed is racist. Uh, I think the justification for it is racist. I think when when Trump sets out the reason for the wall as being because Mexicans are rapists, um, that's where you get into racial territory. Um, but I think the idea of a physical barrier between countries is not necessarily racist. 
and I would somewhat agree, but I, at the same time, I, I personally think that the wall itself as a policy in a vacuum is racist because the fact is that it is only upon one border. It is not a wall that is preventing anyone to come in from the northern border with Canada. It's not a wall that's preventing anyone to come in through airports where you encounter the U.S. border, whether you're flying from you know Germany to Minneapolis or uh, Cape Town to Miami. There's, you're encountering borders at different places, and what he has decided to do is pick one specific border, the only physical one that touches a country with people who are a racial minority in the U.S., and to build the wall there. So I'd say I agree that we need nuance of dissecting these policies uh, and their, their impact on race, but I also think we should call a spade a spade. And, and the Muslim ban, because I, I don't think you guys covered that. Yes, racist. Yeah, I, I, I agree, uh, especially in its original incarnation. Um, I think w whether it's racist or not in its new incarnation uh, is, I guess, more open to debate because it doesn't have a specific exemption for Muslim minorities or, uh, sorry, religious minorities in Muslim-majority countries. Um, but I also think that determining whether somebody can enter a country based on the place they were born is an inherently stupid way to try to approach national security. And that's it for this episode of The Ballpark. Thanks to Eric Kaufman and Brian Klass. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're fab. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for tuning in to Season 2 of The Ballpark. See you next month, and thanks for listening. Well, thank you very much. That's, uh, that's it. We're, we're done, I guess. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> Great. Cool. Thanks. Excellent. That was quick. Great. Yeah, it goes by fast, doesn't it?